Yeah, okay, got it. Good call, good call. Okay, David. David read all this really challenging scripture and then left me up here alone <laughs> to try to master it. Good luck. I'll need it. Um, this scripture, first of all, from 1 Corinthians, um, in which Paul is addressing divisiveness between these uh, brand new Christians in this little congregation in the city of Corinth. One says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. And we get that, right? Um, one says, I follow John Wesley. Somebody else follows John, John Calvin. Someone else follows Billy Graham. Someone follows the Methodist tradition. Someone follows the Baptist tradition. Uh, this religion, that religion, you get the drill. Right? We've heard it all before. I like this pastor. Not that crazy about that pastor. I like Pastor Apollos. I'm not too crazy about Pastor Paul. Uh, we've heard it over and over and over. Um, sometimes when I read this, it reminds me of uh, when my son Daniel was born. Uh, Daniel was born in a small Catholic hospital in a, a small town. And in a time and place where uh, people regularly used the word religion for denomination. They'd say, what religion are you? And they would mean what denomination. Or they'd say, well, I'm of the Baptist religion or I'm of the Methodist uh, religion. And it, it was a pet peeve for me, okay? Because Methodism is not a religion. It's, it's a particular expression of Christianity. Our religion is Christianity, not Methodism. Well, anyhow, when Daniel was born, I was standing out in the hallway talking to the Catholic priest, Father Crom, who was a, a marvelous, sweet guy. And as we were talking, the nurse was trying to get caught up on our paperwork. She would shout these questions out to me. And one of them was, she said, what religion are you? And I knew what she meant. She meant, what denomination are you? But she said, what religion are you? And I said, Christian. And if looks could kill, I mean, <laughs> she just gave me that, you know, don't be smart with me look. And Father Crom says, oh. So you Methodists are Christians. <laughs> I've always wondered about that. Okay, so then in, in light of all that and preparing for this, I came across this cartoon. And I don't know that they got it in the early service. Can you read that? There's two doors, right? Wrong religion, right religion. Nobody thinks they're of the wrong religion. The other people are always wrong, but we're never wrong, right? Even though sometimes we're wrong. Okay, well, I'll put the other slide back on there. How to be odd. My sermon title. And by odd, I don't mean weird in some scary, psychotic way, but simply different. Different, distinct from the world. Odd. Odd from how things normally are. Now, every once in a while, not, not very often, every once in a while, I, I kind of play this mind game with myself uh, that I call, how did I get here? And sometimes I'm in a situation or a place and, and I think, how did I get here? What sequence of events led me to this exact thing at this exact time? An example would be... Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was on the, the mission trip to Belize. 
and we slept on a concrete floor in a church that had no air conditioning and no window screens in the tropics. Uh, the heat and the humidity were just unbearable. Our air mattress to keep the tarantulas from crawling on us at night. And I just remember thinking, how did I get here? What sequence of events led me that I have to spray my bed with bug spray so the tarantulas don't get on me? And I thought, oh yeah, I remember. Years ago, I said, Brenda, let's start going to church. <laughs> and if you're not careful, church will make you different. Odd. You'll end up in places in doing things you never would have gone to or participated in otherwise. Or another example would be when we uh, lived in Washington, D.C. briefly years ago when we were volunteering in a, a women's shelter and were feeding breakfast to these homeless women and it was mostly just stale, out-of-date frosted flakes. And these poor women, and I'm thinking, how did I get here? I'm just a small-town kid from Texas, and I am in the District of Columbia feeding homeless women. How did I get here? Oh, yeah. Now I remember. I wanted to follow Jesus. And when you start following Jesus, sooner or later, Jesus will lead you to the least and the last and the lost and the forgotten. And you end up feeling different, odd not the way the world normally works. Or every once in a while, when Brenda puts our tithe check in the collection plate, and if I'm not careful, I start thinking about it, and I start thinking about what I could buy with that money if we didn't do that, and then I know I have to stop because I know how I got here, and I know who got this going, and I'm a Jesus person, and my money belongs to Jesus, but he lets me keep most of it, but not all of it, so I have to do what I have to do. Hang out with Jesus long enough and you become different, odd, no longer normal in the way the world understands normal. Which uh, then brings me to this scripture, the scripture from 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to, the, to this little congregation in Corinth, uh, this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Now, bear in mind that uh, apostle just means missionary. It literally means one who is sent out. So particularly in the Gospels, uh, if you sit at the feet of Jesus, you're a disciple. If you're sent out into the world, you're an apostle. Um, if, if you're learning from Jesus, you're a disciple. You're a student. If you work for Jesus, you're an apostle. That's all that means, okay? So the Apostle Paul, the missionary Paul, is writing a letter to this little congregation in Corinth uh, of which he's their founding pastor. And if you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and actually some scholars believe it's really maybe four or five letters all kind of edited together. If you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, what you begin to realize pretty quickly is this little church, they're not just odd, they, they're wacko. <laughs> this is a crazy little church. And they're struggling with their divisiveness in all sorts of ways. Divisiveness between one another. And it's actually so acute. And Paul is actually stunned that they're filing lawsuits against one another. Christians suing Christians. 
when they celebrate communion, it sounds more like they instruct them on the proper way to celebrate the sacrament and the proper way to worship. Paul is also shocked at reports of a kind of incestuous promiscuity going on in the congregation, and they think it's fine. They speak in tongues, but they've gotten all snotty and judgmental about people who don't speak in tongues. Forgiveness towards each other doesn't seem to be their strong suit, and I could go on and on. And besides all that, they have questions. This Christianity thing, it's, it's a new thing for them. It's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to figure out how do you live the saved life and what does that look like. And so we're Christians now. Does that mean we can still get married? Uh, what if I'm a Christian but my spouse is not a Christian? Do I have to get a divorce? How do we interact with this world that's mostly not Christian? So they have questions and they have struggles and they have divisiveness and... And it's just the craziest congregation you've ever seen. It's in the Bible. I love that. We think this is new. <laughs> They're a crazy, mixed up, divided, wacko church. And Paul loves them. He loves them. You see it on every page. We say that Paul was an apostle, a missionary, but, but when I read First and Second Corinthians, I think he talks like a pastor. He chides them, he pushes them, he shoves them, he instructs them, he prays for them, he cries over them, he misses them, he, they get mad at him, he gets mad at them, they break each other's hearts, they long to be together, they don't get it right. He calls them baby Christians, which is pretty insulting. It must have a pretty deep relationship with these people to get away with that. They're not ready for solid food. They're not growing in Christ the way they need to grow. He worries over them. And I think what he worries about is this. He's worried that they're becoming normal again. They're becoming just like everybody else. Since there is jealousy and quarreling, he says, among you, are you not mere humans? Isn't that a great phrase? Aren't you just being human when you fight? Aren't you just being normal? That's the way the world is. You're supposed to be different, odd, distinct. I think sometimes when people get fed up and leave the church, it's, it's because we've become like everybody else. I get all that out in the world. I don't need it in here. We need to be different. In the Roman world and Roman culture, the number one thing in life was family. Your loyalty was first of all to family and second to everything else. Think, think the Godfather, right? Think mafia. Nothing demands your loyalty more than family. And so the Roman world, they're shocked. They're confused by these Christians because blood doesn't seem to matter to them. They will sacrifice their lives for you, even when you're not related to them. They use family words like brother and sister and father, and, and they treat each other like family, even though they're not related to one another. It's different. It's so odd to them. In the Roman world, there is a very distinct class system, and you do not interact between the classes, but these Christians don't seem to care. 
They treat the lowest slave and the richest person in town exactly the same. They'll love anybody, welcome anybody, invite everybody. They believe that every person they encounter, everybody is worthy and valuable, important, and and equal. Uh, Everybody gets to belong to the club. That's not how it works. Everybody gets to be a citizen in Roman Empire? No, not everybody. But they talk about everybody being a citizen of the kingdom. It's confusing. It's odd. And so then what's interesting to me is in the Roman Empire, this this oddity, this oddness is attractive to people. The church grows like wildfire. People seem to be longing for something that's different. And I think they still are today. Don't become normal, I hear Paul saying between the lines. Don't be like everybody else. That's why I think the key to evangelism is, is not finding the right marketing strategy, but, but growing in Christ. That when we grow in Christ, when we go from baby Christians to mature Christians, when we change and we're transformed and we become the kind of Christians God needs us to become, then... People are going to say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. I want to be different. I'm tired of being normal. I'm exhausted by the way the world normally works. I want to be something more than just merely human. And then in in the gospel reading that David shared, when you get to uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Man, that's as tough and as challenging as the Bible gets. I was sharing with the earlier service that back in seminary, I took an entire semester on just on the Sermon on the Mount, a Greek exegesis in-depth class. And by the end of it, it seemed more intimidating than at the beginning. It's challenging. I think if you were to read this for the first time and you've never ever heard anything from the Sermon on the Mount before, you would probably get a metaphorical kind of whiplash in ethics. Oh my gosh. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Okay, that sounds good. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to the judgment. Wow. That's pushing hard. Do not be angry. Do not look lustfully at one another. Take marriage as seriously as you can possibly take it. Always tell the truth no matter what. This is is sweet baby Jesus pushing hard on us. And I think it's possible that at first this might seem like Jesus is just almost being so hard. it's, It's mean. Giving us these impossible to keep rules. Jesus pushing us, challenges, telling us how to live our lives. But maybe, just maybe Jesus does this because he loves us. Maybe it's because Jesus is really our pastor. He would be so concerned about peace and reconciliation that we would interrupt the world. You're sacrificed to the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, you you stop right there and you go and you reconcile with them. 
Now imagine the ushers are passing the plate and someone's about to put some money in the plate and they stop and they say, oh no, I can't do this. I can't, I can't get right before God until I get right with this other person. And they get up in the worship service and they walk over to the opposite side of the sanctuary and they say, I, I have to apologize to you. Wouldn't that be odd? Wouldn't that be terrifying? What if all of a sudden everybody gets up and starts doing that? That sounds impossible, right? We did that one time years ago at a big clergy meeting. It was about 250 clergy, and we had to go and find somebody that maybe we felt like we hadn't been right with, and we had to wash their feet. It was the most holy and terrifying moment you can imagine. It was so scary we never did it again. Reminds me of the lady, I, I said, you're going to have to forgive that person. She said, I've forgiven them, I'm just not talking to them. It's <laughs> not how it works. Jesus loves us. He knows that our anger is destructive at the end of the day. There's some real ambiguity here. Sometimes he's sort of suggesting that when someone wrongs us, but then he suggests that maybe when we wrong someone else and it doesn't really just seem to matter a whole lot, that, that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who was right and who was wrong and whose fault it is. All we know is that, is that we're damaged or we're damaging someone else. And we have to be reconciled no matter what. And that's not normal. Jesus loves us and knows that when marriage is not taken seriously, it's destructive. That in that culture, when you easily dismiss your wife, you're making her vulnerable economically and socially. That she's not protected. That lust is to demean and to make less valuable. In a Roman culture where women are not taken seriously, much less respected or equally valued, Jesus seems to be suggesting that, that that's not normal. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We have to be different. Jesus loves us and knows that not telling the truth is always destructive. Even though not telling the truth seems to, to be normative right now. Jesus loves us, and so he needs us to be odd, different, not normal, normal, not merely human. That we need to be saved from everything that seeks to rob us of our joy and our peace and our life. And this is not easy, right? This is not easy stuff. It was my birthday about a week and a half ago. We had reservations for a really nice restaurant, a real treat for us. And so the day of my birthday, I'm at the office, and I had kind of just a string of people coming through that, that they, they, had, they both had jobs, but uh, they couldn't make the electrical bill this week. They um, got laid off for a week. Uh, and it made a big difference. So they had to go to the hospital and just everything is so tight that they 
got the wheels off the track and needed help. And these were, I, I picked up the phone and I canceled our reservation. I said, Brenda, I can't do it. Not today. We'll do it again sometime. But I said, it ain't easy being a Christian today. How did I get here? Why can't I be normal? We went and got Chinese and had a good time. Okay. It's Holy Spirit. It's not easy. It takes Holy Spirit and prayer in a village, which we call a church. It takes self-discipline and imagination and courage. And growing up is not always easy. But let's remember it's not impossible. And when you invite Jesus into it, the king of impossible things, impossible things become kind of normal. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, a Catholic priest started a ministry in Los Angeles years ago. He's in a very violent neighborhood, and the mothers came to him and said, you got to do something. And so they started this ministry to men who were in gangs in a very violent part of Los Angeles. And they... they Take these guys that live a violent, murderous life. Do not murder. Uh, murder is the world they live in. Much less anger. Takes these violent people and the goal is to turn them into pastors, really. Lay pastors. Uh, the way it works is they teach the gang members how to run the ministry priest doesn't run the ministry. The gang members run the ministry. And so you take these violent, hateful people and teach them to be pastors, that they worry over each other. They instruct each other. They push and shove each other. They cry over each other. Their hearts get broken for each other. They become a gang of pastors. Now just think about that for a moment. Think if someone walks in and says, hey, I got an idea. Let's take these violent people and, and make them into little kitty cats for Jesus. He'd say, there's no way that can happen. And praying. Because you know you can't do it by yourself. Without the Holy Spirit, without the power of God, without the grace, without to make the possible happen. All these amazing possible things to make the possible happen. All of which leads me to Lent, which I said earlier is coming up in just a week and a half. Lent is a, is a great season to remind ourselves of our odd journey with Jesus. A great time to once again pick up the disciplines of prayer, scripture, fasting. I didn't hear an amen good works, reminding ourselves of this odd life we've been called to. I'm your pastor, and I love you. Jackie's your pastor. She loves you. Church, you need to be, you need, continue to be pastors to one another. To be different for one another. In all the ways that Jesus calls us to be. The church of Jesus Christ. Amen.